Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. What does social science say about why moms matter most to their children? Why is being physically and emotionally present to your child important? We're going to unpack all of this, diving into the social sciences, psychology, all of those important scientific elements that, in fact, emphasize that what has always really been a God-given and God-ordained position of the human family and how it functions, how child interacts with mother, mother with child, husband with wife, and the whole family dynamic that's so important. Welcome to our weekly marriage hour here on Trending. We're also going to talk about the controversy in the marriage between Tom Brady and Giselle over retirement, not retirement, family time. All of it relates to our topic today, and we're taking your questions. So if you have a question for my guest today, the number is one 914 9149. My guest today is Erica Komazar. She's the author of the book Being There Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. She has been a clinical social worker in the past and for years has worked as a psychoanalyst, especially focusing on parent issues in particular. She's a parent expert. So if you have a question, numbers 1 888. 914-9149. Erica, welcome to Trending. I've really been looking forward to today's conversation, and I love your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I remember a few years back, a friend of mine and I were talking, and she had about a 10-year-old daughter at the time and a 5-year-old son, and she was sharing how her and her husband have had this 12 year plan that by the time her daughter was 12 years old that it was going to be time for her to come home no longer working outside of the home her and her husband had determined that while he was going through a doctoral program and then later establishing his career that with time she would then step back come home and prioritize those important years with her children and I always find found it fascinating because this was right around the time when your book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, your book came out and it showed a lot of the phenomenal social sciences about why moms matter and especially the timing of understanding this. Erica, can you unpack why moms in particular matter most to their children, especially in those early years? Sure. Well, there are two critical windows of of brain development, right brain development. And um, the the right brain is responsible for um, everything to do with emotional regulation, 
stress regulation. You know, a lot of what we're seeing today with the rising epidemic of mental illness in children and adolescents, one in five children will develop some form of mental illness before they leave childhood uh, in America. And so, um, you know, it's really zero to three and then 9 to 25 are the two critical periods of brain development where the environment really matters in terms of that that development. And the environment is really your primary attachment figure, which in most cases is your mother. Um, so it's a very important period of development. 85% of your right brain is developed by the age of three. So you have this, this very short window, zero to three, to have a great impact on your child's emotional development and mental health going forward. That's phenomenal what you just said. 85% of the right brain development occurs by the age of three. So you're talking about all of this emotional stability and attachment that is happening during those first years. And I think this is interesting because there's a lot of controversy over who can and can't be the primary caretaker for a child, whether or not it really matters. I hear all the time people will often say, Erica, that it doesn't matter who's the caretaker as long as there's someone consistent and loving in their lives. And I understand respect that, but your book is, I think, a real challenge to families and especially to mothers on this particular topic. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it definitely does matter. Um, You know, I often hear that. I also hear, you know, well, it's not important to be with my child in the early years. They're not really doing anything. They're just eating and pooping and sleeping and and it doesn't matter who cares for them. So there's a great misunderstanding, which is why I wrote the book. Um, There is such a misunderstanding about how just how important mothers are or primary attachment figures are in that first three year window. Um, What we know is that attachment security which is to a primary attachment figure, uh, is then connected in a very long-term way to the mental health of children. So when you are securely attached in the first three years, you're more likely longitudinally, there's a a big longitudinal study, a 20-year study that shows that children who are securely attached in those first three years are securely attached 20 years later, and children who are insecurely attached are insecurely attached 74% of the time are insecurely attached 20 years later. And what we know is that insecure attachment is connected to things like anxiety, depression, and personality disorders. And it does matter that it's the primary attachment figure. It isn't to say that there's something called alloparenting, which people often refer to um, as being something that is practiced in the rest of the world. And it's also misunderstood. I mean, I think what happens is that terms are thrown around and misunderstood in terms of them being scientifically correct. Alloparenting means that there are alternative attachment figures, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, uncles, aunts, neighbors that are like uncles and aunts. But those uh, those others in, in that child's life will, will play with the child, be with the child when the child is in a good state. But when the child is in distress, those grandmothers, aunts, uncles pass the child back to the mother or primary attachment figure. So the most important thing is that the mother is there when the child is in distress. Um, and we've confused that in our modern culture, particularly in America, with, oh, well, I can put a child into daycare or 
you know, get a babysitter and that's alloparenting. And it's really not because it means that the child is not going back to the mother or primary attachment figure when they're feeling in distress. This poses a challenge for us as women and for spouses to make some choices and prioritize things. And I had read your book some years ago and it fell in line with much of what I believed, but you proved through the show, social science how important it actually is to be there present raising Mm -hmm. your children. We're going to talk about physical presence and emotional presence later and how to be better present and meet the needs of your child. But for years, as I was, you know, working toward what I would be doing with my work, I really would actually turn down some really incredible job opportunities because I knew I wanted to be a mother one day. And I knew if I took a particular Mm -hmm. trajectory, that would be challenging for motherhood, challenging if maybe there was dependence on an income, whatever that might be. And There were a lot of choices that I think women have to make both before and during motherhood that just aren't talked about today, Erica. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, sacrifices, that it requires sacrifice. And Mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, I I think the word sacrifice is not something, again, in modern culture that we think about because we've become such um, an individualistic, self-determined kind of culture uh, independent of one another. And so the idea that we have to sacrifice them in, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and, and in Judaism, we have a term in the Torah, it's Yisrael Ahava, which means you have a sacred obligation. If you bring a child into this world, you have a sacred obligation to care for that child. And that requires sacrifice. Um, it's not forever sacrifice, but it is sacrifice. And no, we don't talk about that enough. It's a real challenge, I think, for people sometimes in a very secular world or even secularized culture where we may still hold to particular world and religious views to come to that specific idea of sacrifice, as you mentioned. I love that you mentioned in the Torah, it talks about a sacred obligation that parents have to their children. Mm -hmm. And it's so, I think, irking for many people when they realize in particular this responsibility falls differently for mother and differently for father. And so when we talk about mm-hmm. this sacred obligation you're mentioning, can we talk a little bit about, I think, some of those moments where the science falls in line with the God-given position that a mother has within the home and relationship with her child. So just a few weeks ago, my husband was talking to a coworker and she is back more recently from maternity leave uh, from her child. And there was a lot of uneasiness within her heart, within her soul about leaving her child, contemplating whether or not to go back to work. And as the last couple months have gone by, she is now experiencing that tug and pull uh, as it's diminishing. And she's decided that, you know what, at the end of the day, I realize that actually my child's happier without me and actually prefers her full-time caregiver than she then she desires me. And my child doesn't want me. She wants the caregiver. And so it's changed her attitude about the necessity of herself within her child's first developmental years. Can you comment on what's happening here and how we should approach this in a very pragmatic and um, subject, not subjective, but objective manner as parents? Well, so there's, there's a few pieces of research that I think might be helpful if we're connecting science to, um, you know, uh, what we've always known to be true, just anecdotally, right? 
the idea that mothers are are really critical to children and why um, this emotional regulation piece is really really important meaning we're seeing this uptick in mental illness in children because they can't regulate their emotions. And by the way, many adults can't regulate their emotions. Um, You know, you've (laughs) seen all of the statistics about, um, I think something just came out that now, you know, physicians are going to be screening everyone under the age of 65 for anxiety and depression. I mean, we really have this epidemic of of mental illness and um, we don't think about the origins of where it comes from. But Um, The concept is that mothers from moment to moment, as they are soothing their baby in distress, they're actually not just soothing their baby. They are regulating that baby's emotions and therefore um, helping to regulate things like stress. So mothers are really, um, there was one researcher that that I interviewed for my book, and she said that mothers are the central nervous system for babies in the first year. So I'm listening to your story and I'm thinking, um, I wonder whether this babysitter knew how to soothe the baby in distress, sadly more than this mother did, or that this mother wasn't mothered that well herself. So we know that what something called generational expression, which is not genetically passed down, but which is passed down through something called inheritance of acquired characteristics. If your mother couldn't mother or wasn't very nurturing or wasn't good at soothing you when you were in distress, wasn't good at reflecting your emotions or regulating your emotions, then what's passed down to her daughter is the inability to regulate emotions in her own children. Um, And there's actually research um, by a famous researcher that shows that basically when um, when animals, when monkeys actually, um, lick and groom their young, their young then lick and groom their young. But when uh, monkeys don't lick and groom their young, um, sorry, sorry, rats, rats lick and groom their young, um, they, they don't pass down the ability to lick and groom. And so basically the concept is that through experience, through nurture, we learn to nurture. Um, and so sadly for that mother, there may have been uh, the babysitter's ability to, to soothe the baby in distress, but that doesn't mean that that mother should run off and say, the babysitter does it better. I mean, I'm someone who believes that if we are self-aware and examine ourselves, we can always be better as parents. We can look at ourselves, look at where we've come from, and try to to be better than our own parents were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a sad story, but in many cases, a true story um, that many mothers don't feel equipped to actually um, to actually nurture today. And this is more than three generations now into women feeling very disconnected from nurturing. Mm-hmm. Eric, I want to come back on this topic because I think you struck a nerve where part of the challenge, as you said, is multi-generational of this confusion about how to mother, how to nurture today, and that disconnection that, that needs to be rebuilt, which is why I want to come back with you discussing the topic of why being physically and emotionally present to your child is important, but also how to do that and maybe how to heal some of those wounds from generational experiences that were maybe confused when it came to motherhood 
and nurturing. My guest today is Erica Komazar. You can find her at ericacomazar.com. She's a psychoanalyst and the author of the book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. If you have a question, the number is 1-888-914-9149. You can also ask your question on social media. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E on social media. I'll be back in just a moment. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. We've been talking about that controversial topic of women's career choices, mothering, staying home versus not staying home, diving into some of the social science. If you've not been with us all hour, you have to catch the podcast, relevantradio.com forward slash trending. My guest today is Erica Komazar, and she is the author of a fantastic book. I've been a fan of it for years, finally got to pick it up and not just read uh, some of your uh, articles or commentary or listen to podcasts that you've done, but you're touching on an important topic. Your book is titled Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, and you have struck a nerve with many women, infuriating some, but telling the hard truth to many of us about the important role that women, specifically mothers, have in their children's lives. Now, I want to dive into what you really focus on that is the heart of your book. And that is why being physically and emotionally present to your child is so important. And also understanding how to do that. We were talking earlier about for some women it's difficult because it's been generations of confused motherhood. Uh, In light of the culture that we've lived in the last 60 years, there's been a lot of ambiguity with regard to the role of the woman within the home. And I want to dive into really this crisis of affirmation for young children today. You were talking earlier about how women, mothers help to regulate their child's nervous system, how that right brain is really developed by the age of three, and that through this we see uh, children really having that emotional stability that's so important to help create resilience about against anxiety, depression, and other um, personality disorders, including you talk about in your book, the connection to ADHD. Let's talk about affirmation and why being physically and emotionally present is important, but I think it's important to start with what's the difference between physical and emotional presence? Well, I mean, you can be physically present without being emotionally present. You can't be emotionally present if you're not physically present. Um, so, you know, you, you can be there physically and just be checked out. And a lot of mothers are. Um, and, and, you know, you, you have to be both physically and emotionally present for children to really get what they need from you. You know, and this idea of stress, you know, we use the term resilience in society today. We all want our children to be resilient. And basically what that means, we want them to be resilient to stress. Um, and what we don't really understand um, is that our ability to tolerate frustration, to regulate stress, it comes from the very early interactions with our mothers or primary attachment figures, meaning mothers serve the function of buffering children from stress in the beginning. Um, And that allows children to feel safe 
and so at about three years of age, if they get that sort of constant buffering of stress from major stressful events, even from minor ones, they internalize a feeling of safety. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to send our children out into the world, not feeling frightened, but feeling truly organically safe. And a lot of children are being forced to be defensively independent and and deal with stress on their own with very high levels of cortisol uh, in their brains and um, without being equipped to deal with it. And it will either come out in early childhood or it will come out in the primary school years or it will come out in adolescence, but it will come out at some point. And it will come out in the form of ADHD-like symptoms. It'll come out in the form of anxiety. Because if you think about ADHD, it's nothing more than your brain in a hypervigilant state in response to stress. Um, and so people don't know that. They think of it, and there's a real movement to take the D off of ADHD, meaning not call it a disorder. Because, in fact, it's a symptom of uh, a child's inability to cope with stress, right? So if you think about um, the fact that, that we, we're not born resilient to stress. We only internalize a feeling of safety by having somebody there in the beginning buffering us. That what you said was really fascinating, touching on the ADHD topic. Again, joining me now is Erica Komazar. She's a psychoanalyst and the author of the book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Mother in the First Three Years Matters. Can you say that again? You said ADHD, the real definition to help us understand, is being in a state of hypervigilant distress. Is that correct? That's right. It's the idea that, that your brain can't cope with the stress that you're exposed to. Um, And, you know, the only way that our brains are really incrementally trained to deal with stress by having our primary attachment figure there to go to, to be our touchstone to protect us when we're really scared. Um, Otherwise we go out into the world feeling very fragile and at, at, at the least exposure to stress, we then react to it. And we react to it in a very intense way. And so, yeah, ADHD is is basically a symptom of the brain's inability, basically being overwhelmed by stress. Fascinating. So tying this back to mothers in those first three years, you discussed earlier how the right brain is really 85% developed by the age of three. How does physical and emotional presence influence that? And what does that mean in terms of how to be emotionally present? Well, I mean, th- there are a few things that I say immediately t- to mothers who come to see me, which is that, you know, if you are joyful about mothering, if you take joy in your baby, if you are interested in your baby more than anything else, your baby is going to feel interesting and your baby is going to feel attended to. If you make eye contact, if you use touch, if you use your voice and vocalizing what we call motherese, you know, when mothers use motherese, which is, oh, honey, how are you, sweetheart? The kind of the, the lilting, high-pitched voice that mothers use is actually called motherese. And that has basically been known to reduce cortisol levels, the stress hormone in babies' brains. So we know eye contact, um, voice, touch, um, being mindful, meaning being in the present, not trying to multitask while you're being with your baby, um, not cooking dinner while you're trying to attend to your baby, but really just dropping everything that is much less important, whether it's cooking, cleaning, work, and just dropping everything and dropping on the floor and being with your baby um, and showing interest in 
the little um, things that your baby does. You know, the um, the brain is expanding and growing, um, millions of synapses growing every minute. And so the idea that we we pay attention to our babies with great interest, um, that makes our babies feel interesting and loved. And it's fascinating if you really know that every time a baby picks up a toy, puts that toy in their mouth, they're learning about the world, their brains are expanding. And having your mother a primary attachment figure there, admiring you, observing you, interacting with you, um, it lights the baby's right brain up, literally lights the baby's right brain up in the, in the, um, in the studies that we have and the research that we have. So uh, being in the present, not being someplace else, in your mind, um, dropping your electronics. I mean, I can't tell you how many mothers breastfeed while they're looking at their phones or they'll walk down the street um, pushing their baby's prams with their babies facing out rather than in, and they'll be talking on the telephone. Um, so, you know, that's not being present. That's not being mindful. Um, and I always say to mothers, more is more. You know, many mothers have to work. And um, the idea is the more you can be there physically and emotionally for your baby in the first three years, uh, the better off that baby will be. So this is challenging. It's a challenge to me. It's a challenge, I think, to every mom listening, especially, you know, if there's a challenge of other children, of balancing work, of balancing keeping up the home, whatever it might be. I own my mm-hmm. scenario, I have a 21-month-old, and I predominantly, praise the Lord, am able to work 98% of the time while she's asleep. And, right. you know, the rest of the day, that does mean, you know, their dinner does have to be made, keeping up with the kitchen. Other, you know, parts of the day, there are other things that are filling in parts of those times. And so it's a balance of really trying to keep up with her emotional needs, knowing that that's important. But it's fascinating to me because too much cleaning in the kitchen at a certain point she's she has this moment where she's no she's done playing independently and she just wants attention and it's not just undivided attention it might even just be she wants to make sure that i was aware enough that she just played three little keys on her adorable little piano and she looked up to see if i was paying attention and those moments i see on her face are so important to her to receive that little bit of contact and affirmation well, if you think about it this way, you are your baby's entire world. You are their universe. And and I don't think we think about it very much, but, but you are their entire world. So they live to meet your eyes, to get your touch, uh, to be close to you, um, to have you be attentive to them, to have you reflect their emotions. They live for those moments. And meanwhile, we're going on and living our lives, doing all kinds of things. But for that baby, you are their entire universe. And that is a very heavy and weighty thing to carry. It doesn't mean, as you say, that you can't, I mean, we all have to, we have other children, we have to make dinner, we have to clean. I mean, it's not as if babies can deal with what I call incremental uh, periods of frustration 
Um, and even incremental periods, as you say, of playing by themselves or separation. Um, but the word is incremental, right? Just as we wean a baby from the breast, we also have to help them incrementally be, to be exposed to frustration. And that's how they develop frustration tolerance. What we're doing with things like sleep training, going back to work at six weeks or three months and putting them in daycare. I mean, what we're doing is we are promoting in that baby a part of their brain to function, the stress regulation part, a part of the brain called the amygdala. We're asking that part of the brain to function before it's actually ready to go online. And there's real consequences to that. Um, the amygdala, if we make it function too early, then it actually expands and becomes larger than it should. And then it actually burns out, sort of like an overinflated balloon that pops. It actually just shrivels up. If we force babies to be too independent and to deal with too much stress too early, we actually, um, it has long-term consequences to their ability to regulate stress in the future. But babies can deal with incremental stress. So how do we stay aware? I think that's one of the challenges. And before we get there, if you're just joining us, that's Erica Komazar. She wrote a fantastic book that is so important and challenging for parents and mothers today. But talk about meeting your child's needs and understanding how God created the human family, what was intended from the beginning, really does hold true with the science that is out there today. The book's called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. We posted links on social media and have also tagged Erica. You can find her at ericacomazar.com. Again, that's ericacomazar.com. E-R-I-C-A-C, sorry, E-R-I-C-A-K-O-M-I-S-A-R.com. Erica, how do we find this balance moment to moment? I know part of it is being aware and alert and watching, but as you mentioned, you know, those short stints of independent play or distress are okay, but there's a balance. So even if it's something as simple as, okay, I'm trying to get the full kitchen clean, I'm trying to make this meal, knowing when to just pause for two or three minutes in the middle or to just stop cleaning and do the rest of it in a few hours, when do we know when to drop everything and just sit down on the floor if, you know, we tend to think, okay, well, you know, I am playing with my child this morning and then I'm going to play with her a little more in an hour. But right now she's maybe getting a little emotionally uh, distraught because of that. How do we meet those needs and recognize those signs? Well, you know, again, there is reality. We have to do certain things around the house. But my favorite um, scene between a mother and a baby was a movie called, I think it was called The Good Mother. Um, and it was basically a mother who was overwhelmed with her home and her cooking and just it was the last scene of the movie and the mother just dropped she looked at her baby and she had a moment of self-awareness and she was able to be reflective and say I can do this cleaning later it doesn't need to be perfect and this baby is looking to me like you said your baby looks to you when they really need you. And again, babies can deal with moments of frustration, but this baby was looking at this mother saying, I need you now. The mother dropped everything. She dropped the dishes. She dropped the cleaning. She shut off the stove and she sat on the floor with the baby and snuggled and looked at the ball with the baby that the baby was holding. And that was how the movie ended. 
And I think, you know, if we think about, we're not trying to be perfect here. We're trying to be good enough. The Good Enough Mother was a book written by Bruno Badelheim. And basically, we're trying to be good enough. And by being good enough, it means that there are going to be moments when we don't meet our baby's emotional needs. And we want to repair those moments as quickly as we can. So if you didn't meet your baby's gaze or you couldn't be there and the baby starts to cry, that you then drop what you're doing and go over and, and, you know, really connect with the baby and say, I'm so sorry, mommy wasn't there when you needed me. I'm here now. That repair moment is as important um, as the moments when you connect with your baby, because we can't be there every moment. I mean, we just can't. And if you do work, because women are listening who also work, if you go out of the house to work, um, then when you come home, that is repair. You're repairing being away. And that's a very critical part of creating emotional security in children. The repair is as important as actually being there. You have a whole book on talking about repairing those broken connections, whether you work outside of the home or maybe you're away for a short period of time and it was distressing for the child. What are some of your key tips on working on repairing those moment-to-moment, day-to-day interactions or maybe those longer ones that are a full day or a couple days long? Well, the first thing I would say is take responsibility and, um, you know, apologize to your baby. Say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can see that I wasn't there when you needed me. Mothers get defensive when I say that. Um, But that is really what babies need to hear. They need to hear that you take it seriously, their pain and their hurt and their feelings of rejection or abandonment, because that's what they feel. Um, And so, you know, taking responsibility not distracting them from their emotions, allowing them to feel whatever they feel and reflecting that emotion. If they're sad, don't try to cheer them up. Mothers come in from work and they feel guilty and they see their baby sad and they start jiggling their baby and dancing with their baby and laughing at their baby and trying to make their baby, trying to upregulate their baby too quickly. Instead of Um, really looking at their baby and reflecting the sadness and saying, I see you're sad. Mommy was gone today. It must have been hard. And then once the baby feels understood, because that's all as human beings we want. We want to feel understood emotionally. Once the baby feels emotionally understood, uh, then the baby can be upregulated. Then the baby can smile at the mother and touch the mother's hair and snuggle with the mother. But not until you recognize the the distress or the emotions that they're feeling. So it means being very sensitive and empathic and not being, uh, not projecting onto the baby that they have to be happy that you're home because they may be angry. They may be sad. They may not want to talk to you or see you. Um, and, and you have to go and reflect whatever emotion they're feeling in that moment and take responsibility. And that will potentially move the baby on so you can connect in a different way. So those are some of the things. The other thing is if you're away all day at work, then I would say don't go out at night. I mean, this is a real modern thing. We work all day. We come home, we see our babies, and and then we think we can go out again to dinner or to dinner parties or business dinners or whatever. Um, I always say once out, once in with very young children. Um, It's too much to go in and out and in and out. But if you used your chits to be away during the day, then going out at night should be taken off the table, right? So if you have a certain amount of time that that baby can tolerate you being away, then they need you at night, particularly at night, because night is such a sensitive time in terms of separation. 
those are some of the tips. There's a lot more in the book, as you know, but. Erica, these are keen insights. Again, challenging moms, challenging parents in terms of the choices we make. And I highly appreciate your book. And I know we're going to ruffle a lot of feathers, uh, but I appreciate the truth and candor and the challenge, the true challenge that this requires sacrifice for families, sacrifices for spouses, sacrifices for moms to really meet what that child needs that is a part of human nature from the beginning and a part of our responsibility. And I love your method with drop everything. You know, what are the distractions? Know your distractions, but always be willing to drop it all, to drop to the floor, to be present with your child. Erica, thank you for what you're doing. That's Erica Comazar, the psychoanalyst. You can find her at ericacomazar.com, E-R-I-C-A. K-O-M-I-S-A-R.com. We post a link on social media as well as in the podcast notes for today's show if you didn't catch that link. And please pick up this book. You know, it's one of those books that you can really read beginning to end and you receive so much information, uh, so many challenges, but also you're being equipped to know and better understand motherhood in the face of the challenges of the 21st century that also fit into the very nature of humans and how we interact within our families and with our children. Check out the book, 10 out of 10 recommend. I'll be right back here on Trending during our weekly marriage hour, and we're going to talk about the controversial topic of men and work today as well, how a husband's career choices also impact the family. This has been in the news a lot lately with the controversy between football player Tom Brady choosing not to retire after all this year and his wife, supermodel Giselle. I'll be right back here on Trending. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to our weekly marriage hour today on Trending. It's great to be with you. If you weren't with me before, I hope you will catch the podcast. The author of the book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, Erica Komazar. She's a psychoanalyst and, oh boy, incredible information, real challenge and how to equip us as mothers, as parents, as families. Uh, she's phenomenal. You have to go back and listen to the podcast. Share this with everyone you know. Relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you catch your podcast. Podcast will be available later on this evening. Okay, I'm taking your questions. So if you have a question, the number is 1-888-914-9149. You can also ask it live now on Instagram if you like. I had a really fascinating question come in from a dad actually. But before we get there, I want to talk about, since we've already been there, controversy around career choices. We were basically earlier in part talking about career choices for women and motherhood without directly getting into that topic. But I do think this is a fascinating issue right now. Whether you love them or hate them, football player Tom Brady and model Giselle have been in the news a lot the last couple of months. And I think they provide an opportunity for all of us to talk about controversy within family, marriage, career choices, and again, coming back to the roles of spouses within the context of marriage. So if you follow the story, as you know, supermodel Giselle is married to Tom Brady, the Buccaneers quarterback. 
He announced early this year that he was retiring, and then within a couple short weeks, he changed his mind, announcing he would be playing, I believe it's a 23rd uh, season of football, 23rd to 25th. He's been in for quite a long time. And, well, let's just say it sounds like from everything that's been said, this caused the, this was the catalyst of disruption between Tom Brady and Giselle in their marriage. And, okay, confirmed, Patrick said this is a 23rd season for Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady. So Giselle and Tom have both especially over the last couple weeks, opened up a little bit more so about what's been going on in the heated moments of their marriage of late. Giselle, being the mother of two of his children, has commented that at the heart of the whole issue is she wants her husband to be more present to the family. This is a justifiable argument for all wives and mothers to make. It's also an important role that we hold as women when turning to our spouse and the father of our children, and keeping them accountable. There are things that men should keep us accountable for within the family, and things wives should keep their husbands accountable for within the family. And while we can talk a lot about the important role of fathers in providing and protecting for their families, a father being present to his family is also important. I think sometimes we confuse buying presents with how important just our presences within the home. That's for both men and women. But it also comes to the topic of career choices, which we'll get to in a moment. If you have a thought on this, I'd love to hear from you. 1-888-914-9149. So Giselle has made a few comments on this. She said, obviously, I have my concerns. She said, this is a very violent sport and I have my children and I would like him to be more present. Giselle also has told Elle Magazine, I have definitely had those conversations with him over and over again. So Giselle has now publicly addressed her two main concerns. The violence of the sport, he's going into his 23rd year, he's not getting any younger, he's been a phenomenal athlete, but the bottom line is your body begins to deteriorate. Each blow, each hit, everything starts to weigh on the body. And second, they have a family and she would like him to be more present. And I love that she says it this way. I have my children and I would like him to be more present. It's very simple. It's very clear. She's not bashing him. She's even talked about the importance of him following his dreams and career, which that is another topic. She called herself the white witch. I'm not talking about that today. She, she and Tom Brady practiced some creepy things that don't fall in line with the church. And by the way, we've talked about this before on, the trend, on trending. We'll have to post a link on social media about how they're Catholic and practicing some pretty controversial uh, things. Uh, I'll post a link to that on social media as well as the podcast note. So that's Giselle's issue, the importance of presence within the family and that the sport is violent. Now, what is fascinating is Tom is clearly starting, if you didn't understand this before, starting to get it. He did a recent interview over the last week and Tom Brady said, I haven't had a Christmas in 23 years. I haven't had a Thanksgiving in 23 years. I haven't celebrated birthdays with people I care about born from August to late January. And I think there comes a point, he said, in life where you say, you know what? I've had my fill. It's enough and be able to move into other parts of life. 
Warning to all of the fans of Buccaneer quarterback Tom Brady. Sounds like Tom Brady may officially be retiring at the end of his 23rd season in football. I'll be interested to see what happens here. Clearly, Tom Brady's understanding the concerns of his wife. And clearly, he's looking back saying, I've missed a lot. And there is a time to move on. And perhaps he was having a difficult time moving on, especially after such a strong and effective and successful career. But it's one of those moments where we ask the question, does a husband and father's career choices impact the family? Should we say no? Should men, just like women, I talked about this earlier, say no to certain types of jobs and positions and career trajectories in light of family time? This is a challenge because we know the primary God-given role of the husband within the family is to be the main protector and provider. And so career choices as a man, I think, is really at the heart of the topic of the Tom Brady and Giselle controversy that's stirring within their marriage and has become very, very public. I have a friend who was sharing with me not too long ago about how he had this opportunity many years ago in his career uh, to step into a very high-level executive position with a very uh, lucrative company, would be an incredible salary, and a very high-profile company. And he said he was talking to the CEO who was interviewing him. And the CEO pulled him aside and said, look, you've got the job. And he took him out to eat and he said, You need to know something, though, because I know you're a family man, you're married, and you have children. He said, the people who work in our company like to have a lot of fun, and we have a lot of fun working. That includes a lot of drinking, a lot of women, a lot of partying. He said, the men who work for me do not stay married, and they're at least having relationships with other women apart from their spouses. He said, I want you to know that because if you come and work for us, you're going to have a lot of fun, but you're also going to partake in a lot of things that might not be what you want. And this is the lifestyle we live. You're more than welcome. The door is open, but I just want to be really frank with you as to what this company culture looks like. My friend had to go home and say, honey, I'm not taking the job and explain to her why. But that wasn't an easy choice for him. And I think that in looking back on the story that he shared with me, it's one of those moments where, thank God, this CEO was honest with him. But are we honest with ourselves? You know, I look at someone such as Tom Brady and others who are on the road, away from family, in high-profile environments, in party-type atmospheres, among other things. And do we know when we say, I can't withstand this temptation? Or do we know when we should say, I shouldn't put myself in the near occasion to begin with? That this level of power, this level of partying and entertainment within this particular job isn't good for my soul, isn't something I can stand against, Are we able to ask those questions? And I really throw that challenge out there to men. Have you really considered this? Because I see this this breakdown between Tom Brady and Giselle in a very public way. And she's endured many years of this. I think, what, did they get married somewhere around 2009, 2012-ish? I think they have their oldest kid is about 12 years old. 
And I see it where, you know, she has waited. She's honored and respected his career and him living out his career and her also stepping away from parts of her career as well, of being a model. I was talking to my mom about this the other day. Modeling, we have to remember, is a career that doesn't last very long. Uh, there's a there's a ticking time bomb on that career. And she has stepped aside in some ways and done other work in others to mother their children. And there's a legitimacy to a frustration, I think, for spouses in finding that balance of what we've planned, what we've agreed to, what changes with regard to the specific needs of our family and specific opportunities. And so I am riveted by the story of Tom Brady and Giselle. I think it's a good example for us to be honest with ourselves with needs, to always call one another out as spouses into our God-given roles, and how to properly balance that, not to be consumed by one part of our role, but to have that means, that virtuous balance between two extremes when it comes to our responsibility. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. I had a question come in that I really wanted to touch on today on the show. And this question came in from Tom who emailed me. He shared he's a divorced dad and has a teenage daughter. And he said, by the way, he loves Wednesday's Gentleman Hour, which I'm so happy you do. But he said his 17-year-old high school senior daughter and he are having a little bit difficult of an issue. He said his wife does not, unfortunately... Uh, go to church, and unfortunately, the daughter isn't going to church either. That's a whole topic in and of itself, but the daughter is being pitted in some ways against the father. And he said one issue in particular is birth control, that his daughter, his 17-year-old daughter, has been put on birth control by his wife, who he separated from, and he said, we communicate well, we have a great relationship, but how does a dad tell his daughter the truth when her mother is telling a lie about the agenda of birth control. And so he's asking, how do I handle this topic of birth control with my daughter? By the way, I just want to say I admire so many fathers who have written to me about the issue of birth control for your daughters because you understand this is a medical issue as well as an interpersonal crisis for young women, and we need to be able to respond to that. So I think the best approach when we talk about birth control is really to appeal to the scientific reality of birth control. And so I really want to recommend a a book called A Happy Girl's Guide. Oh gosh, I just forgot the last part of it. Happy Girl's Guide to Being Healthy and Whole, I believe. I'll post a link on social media as well as in the podcast notes. Uh, But it talks about woman's body and our health and what does and doesn't go for our body. It dives into a lot of sound scientific information. So every young woman, high school up, should have this book uh, because this is empowering information to help us understand and articulate to other people about our bodies. And this could be something, dads, you can read this too. And, you know, maybe you give this as, you know, a gift like, hey, I want to empower you. I know you chose to go on birth control or, you know, this is something that's happened and I want to make sure you have all the information. So first, helping her to understand birth control is a group one carcinogen that is a threat to her body. Second of all, understanding that it does throw things off emotionally for a young woman and emotional stability is something that girls struggle with and especially anxiety and depression can be a part of being on the pill only because our hormones are being altered and hormones, as any young girl will know, that time of the month can influence 
your mood and what girl actually wants to be moody. Um, so you have hormone imbalance, mood, anxiety, depression, group one carcinogen. We could talk about a number of other medical fallouts that girls need to know about, but also young women need to know that hormonal birth control can affect their potential to have children one day. And so to tell your daughter, honey, if you want to have children one day, the choices you make with what you put in your body today will Im impact your future motherhood. Let's preserve and protect that and honor your body and keep you healthy in the meantime. Pass on that book. I'll post a link on social media. Thanks for the question. I'll be back tomorrow here on Trending. This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. We're going to talk about betrayal trauma Friday on Trending. The real challenge and heartbreak with everything from cheating to pornography and how that impacts a marriage. We'll also dive a little bit into the topic of cheating with the whole Adam Levine scandal happening right now. So join me Friday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.